0: Welcome everyone to another instalment of the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. Today we are talking about relationship management and touching on managing upwards and everything that's involved with relationship management in the gaming studio. Today I'm joined by the production manager at Splash Damage, Jordan, head of Studio UK at Larian Studios, Arthur, and the senior producer from Sumo Digital, Joanna, and finally the associate executive producer at Natural Motion, Marish. Let's Before we get into the questions, we'll get straight into some quick introductions. Jordan, can you give us a quick intro? Hi,
1: I'm Jordan. I'm the production manager for the publishing department at Splash Damage in Bromley. Uh, Been in gaming for about seven years. Born in Suffolk, always wanted to be in this. Good to be here. Thanks, Harry. Fantastic, Joanna.
2: Thanks, Harry. I'm Joanna Skadupa. I'm a senior producer at Sumo Digital. I've been in gaming for over ten years now. I'm currently working as an internal uh, in internal production. In the past, I worked as an external producer on the publisher side at PlayStation. Thanks for having me.
0: Amazing. And Arthur,
3: thank you. Hey, I'm Arthur. I'm head of studio uh, in the UK for Larian. Uh, this role for us is kind of about supporting the development team in making great games and building the right studio environment for them. Uh, thank you for inviting me.
4: Raise your hand, finally, Marius. Uh, hello, there. my name is Marius. Uh, I'm associate executive producer at uh, Natural Motion, working on the racing franchise, and I'm in games for about 20 years now. <laughs>
0: We've got decades of experience in the room, so let's get straight into it. So everyone has brought a question to ask the other guests on the topic of relationship management. So first up is Jordan. Jordan, what is your question and the context behind it? Certainly. Um, So
1: I wanted to bring one to the table that I think is applicable to uh, every studio in the world, uh, most likely. And that is how best to foster good relationships between your studio leadership team and your project leadership teams. Uh, now the the context for that, I guess, is that the two groups are always focused on different pictures. Right? Studio leadership is looking at the big picture, The next five years, shareholder expectations, studio strategy. The project leadership team is very much focused on the project, making it as good as it can be, getting it out on time, hopefully getting it out on budget. You know, making sure staff and team health is as high and as good as it can be. Review scores coming strong. There's a lot of room for misalignment within that. Um, And I think very different priorities, right? So how best do you foster that strong relationship between the two? Um, I guess I'll I'll start off with what I think the three points that, uh, you know, are are involved with that, right? I think it comes down to, to, to three levels in the sense of just who owns the communication between the two? Who owns it? Is expectation management at the forefront of both people's minds? I mean, clear and candid expectation management at a senior level. And um, a, a surprising third third swing, maybe a bit of a curveball, briefing. The simple brief. Were goalposts set? Can goalposts be set? Can someone plan for something if they don't know what they want? That's the three points that come into it. I open it up to the room. Arthur, what do you reckon?
3: Um, yeah, you used the word, which I found interesting, which was misalignment. And I think that holds the key to the answer. So I, I believe that the right thing to do is to align with between the two groups, yeah? And the best way to do it is communication. Namely, you would want to communicate to production if you're in studio management, what your longer-term goals are, how you see achieving them, and how they could help you in achieving them. And ask them the same question, like how you can help them in achieving their, like shorter or mid-term or even longer-term goals as well, uh, if that makes sense. What do you think, Marish?
4: Uh, I would like to expand, Jordan, on your third part, which was about the briefing. Um, I was actually thinking about the process. Uh, Everyone's busy and everyone has different priorities. Even within a group like like project leadership or the studio leadership, people will be following a lot of different agendas. Uh, What I found very useful is to have a process that will make sure that these people come together at specific time. And there's, for example, a deck to present or just some clear information what where we've been last week what is the plan for the next week um that's probably is what you would describe as a briefing uh, let me know if if I'm correct in that and uh, that covers a lot because that prevents uh the situation when the team goes uh, doing their own thing for a long time without really having that all of the all the responsible stakeholders in the same room to talk about it um The other part is um, (laughs) playtests. We we are in game development. The game is the the product. We all play games. Uh, As long as there is some exposure and uh, studio leadership is also exposed to how the game is going to look like, it helps a lot. Sometimes putting a build or even recording a play time, let's say putting on a screen for five minutes during the meeting, it's better than thousands of words.
2: Joanna? I think those are really good points, Jordan, and I think one critical one perhaps was missing from it, which I think is the studio culture. Um, That studio's culture affects so many aspects of, you know, the the communication, the relationship, the trust, and not having the right culture will impact you and will impact your communication and will impact your relationship. Um, So if you want things to go smoothly you have to invest in your studio culture
0: how would you do that uh joanna so what would you think is a good culture like if you had to make (laughs) one from scratch
2: think that podcast is long enough <laughs> to talk about what would what, what, uh, add to uh, good culture but things that like in this situation could really negatively affect it if you have that problem in your studio is for example blame culture that will that will have a huge if, if that's something that's you know can be recognized that um at your studio that will affect that relationship and that will affect that communication um So you want, you want to build trust. You want to build, um, you know, people's confidence in, in communication so they can raise issues and they can, you know, that, um, what Jordan mentioned, that candid talk about, um, management of the expectation, what can be done, what can be delivered. People need to feel safe in order to be able to talk about it. And, and, and if you have that blame culture, if, people are afraid, they might not be raising those issues early enough. And then that will then trigger a whole avalanche uh, of things that will affect your deliverables.
3: Arthur, on that. I actually wanted to ask the same thing that you did, but I would um, just maybe add to this, to what Joanna just said, is that I think consistency is, be to a key as well, being upfront and direct about what you declare and following up on it. You know how you can like declare a certain goal or just where you will be moving towards, what you will be moving towards um, to your team or to the production as studio management. And then at some point you will encounter obstacles or issues or your paradigm may may change, yeah, as you go, and you would just shift into a different direction. But at this point, it's I feel it's always quite important to. Explain to your team first why the paradigm is changing instead of just doing it and saying like, yeah, just deal with it. We're going a different way now. So being consistent on what you declare.
0: A hundred percent. I wanted to add one thing there. Like, like I've seen it firsthand with some of our clients where the they have those briefings. Let's say it's once every couple months sometimes if it's a very big project. And then literally on the day it gets canceled, we're going to find another time to do that. And that causes a lot of damage, which I think they're not realizing, even if it comes because of a big reason, like Unity dropping a bunch of new fees. And they're like, all right, we need to redo things. But I think, like, if you are going to book the briefing, from my perspective, like, you need to either stick by or profusely apologize and really try to find a quick solution. Otherwise, people start talking and then there's rumors and that you don't want that. Jordan.
1: I think uh really really great points from everyone there um i think to, to to almost come back round to where arthur started us there um the that 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 ceremony or that breathing point who uh you you reflect it through a production team a production team is only ever attached to a project who owns the production of the studio who owns the production of the studio leadership team, who owns the production of the publishing team, or any of these other teams that fall out of this traditional model that we've had set in the games industry for so long now, right? I think that you're absolutely right, both Jan and what you're saying, in a studio culture where people feel safe to raise something ahead of time so it can actually be actioned almost with foresight before it becomes a major fire. I think, Marius, you're spot on in the sense that, you know... (laughs) is the team playtasting regularly? Is the game going to be a surprise to them for them when they see it for the first time in six months? Or, you know, are, are, is is a briefing on paper? Or is that a five-minute discussion? And then and then back to where Arthur was pointing in the sense of following up and, and and actually following through in what you do say, all of that connects together in a sense that a lot of the layers of, you know, what, three, four, 500-person studio aren't going to have the same optics on what Arthur is focused on as a studio head. Or what jano is focused on as a senior p or what um, marish is is focused on right so i think context is key to enabling that uh management of any expectation i think defining something that's wanted the more you can define what things you do want then at least that leaves the room to maneuver when no notice plans happen or when you need to decide to drop a bombshell or you know as, as such so it's there's, there's an element there in the middle that I think isn't catered for in most studios that, that is actually the root cause of a lot of what can be quite contentious, quite difficult to deal with, a lot of worry for your staff, or, you know, a change in direction for a game team that they can feel is very sudden, very out of nowhere, or without reason. Um, so I'd, I would agree with all of you, but equally, I don't think any studio ne- necessarily has that handled. Uh, fully i think there's room to grow there i think there's room for to progress across the whole industry there um especially given the current climate what do you reckon um jana uh
2: i absolutely agree with all the things you just said like it is and and you're absolutely right we are in quite difficult moment as an industry we're a little bit on on you know going through this cycle of up and down and currently we're hopefully looking forward to go up but um I think transparency is really, really important when you make decisions, you need to provide the context and it doesn't matter on which level you are. Um, I really truly believe that hiding things away from people, um, if you're hiding things because you're protecting people. That's not gonna work because people people are not silly they will figure out that things are going wrong and and it's not quite right and they will ask questions and they will be guessing and usually those guesses tend to be even even worse than the reality so you're probably better off to offer them the truth and, and of course the delivery of the truth is extremely important just as important as the information is important how you communicate that to the people you work with. Um, so I think that the transparency providing the context so people can understand certain decisions and and the same making sure that your expectations are clear and it, it, it's both from the upper management and it's the same from the team leadership, from the project leadership team, you have to really put a lot of effort into communicating and, and making sure that you are on the same page. And you are talking about the same deliverables and, and the frequent and debriefs. And going back to what Arthur said, um, that consistency, I thought that was a really good point because that consistency is a show of respect towards the people you work with. And that's super important for um, to maintain a good culture of your studio. It's.
0: I'm just re- reflecting here. It sounds like this is, a essential part of the studio's like well-being that this relationship happens. But I think Jordan mentioned something which has got me thinking. Like, who owns the responsibility to make sure there is good relationship between studio leadership and project leadership? Because you might think that would be like, I guess the head head or the head honcho CEO would be very uh, interested in that. But I don't know if the incentives are actually there where someone's got control of like doing all this relationship kind Of nurturing and making sure, that, like, I it's, it's less, um, it's hard to measure, I feel, which makes me feel that you know maybe there is someone that needs to have like responsibility. What do you think,
1: Jordan? Can I offer a story? First, first gaming job seven years ago, a young Jordan uh arrives at a very, very small flat, short notice. He's left, he's left startup tech he's excited to get into games, working on his childhood franchise, a much-loved franchise that I've played since I was eight. Brilliant. One of the objectives that I got set by my lead at the time that I didn't expect was go to the pub on Fridays. I expect you at the pub on Fridays. I was like, ha, all right, I had worse objectives. Lovely job. Okay. Um, what's the aim? I asked him. He's like, "Uh, all I want you to do is speak to people not in our team exclusively. If every week you come out with two people you've met from different departments, you won't know who you run into, you won't know what mood you run into them in, but all I want you to do is work relationships constantly. It's the one thing that's screaming out from your interview that you're good at. Make friends. Make friends everywhere. Find information constantly. See how you can use it. A year later, I think, I was... Uh, I was doing very well because of that. I joined the the Football Fives aside. I'd made sure I'd engaged very actively in our studio culture. I paid attention not just to my own project, but to every project because when you're on a publishing team, you you always work on everything, not just one thing. I'd made I'd forged so many friendships, and some of them happened to be with studio leadership. Excellent. So then, as I grew, and you think I'm only God, what age am I at that point? Twenty-five. God, I thought it was a long time ago. <laughs> But seven years ago. So yeah, uh, I, and at the time, I'm like, okay, well, this, you know, I, my my little world is, you know, the the little video editing job that I was brought in to do, right? It you know, didn't go much further than that. But the more those weeks went on, the more I started to appreciate the bigger picture for an exec producer, the bigger picture for our studio head, we bumped into him, we had a beer, and whatever. And it started, it started making this exact point clear, Harry, who usually owns this relationship. And I find in a lot of studios, uh, especially if they have an internal marketing or an internal publishing function, that there is usually a, a gulf or a gap where studio leadership will need to tell publishing something or, you know, biz dev something or you know, somewhere in the middle something before usually it will be relevant to their project leadership team. So it ends up being this kind of chain of carry on, right? Your SLT talks to your publishing team who ends up kind of divvying that out into what does that look like for them as work that then goes into the PLTs. I think you don't have anyone that owns it currently. I think that's why you'll get such varying degrees of happiness in this exact relationship in most studios. Because honestly, we're all against the same problem, right? We're we're all suffering with a a massive shortage of time, very time poor, way too many meetings in a day. Eventually you get stretched so, so thin that you become ineffectual or, or you find it very hard to balance your life, everyone you need to speak to, catching them at the right time, right? So there is no right way to own this being the slt need to really really trust in whoever they're giving that ownership to the plts in turn need to respect and to want to listen to that person so a lot of the time you've got the the kind of campaign layer which is the studio isn't necessarily being catered for by publishing who have their own layer who then isn't also being catered for by plt plt are thinking about their gates thinking about the progress of the game where the next milestone is the build Publishing, I think about all the games where they go to markets are starting, what first party agreements they need to attend to, whatever else falls onto their their remit. Maybe they half help with studio, half help with games. They've got split priorities. And then you've got your actual studio layer who are thinking, right, major work events for the year, five-year plan, 10-year plan even, next year, next board of shareholders review, etc. right? I think everyone would have a different approach to it. The important part to underline is that everything can improve if someone Is trusted enough to do that, and you can negotiate both ways. And I think bringing it back to my original story, fostering good relationships, especially those way outside of your circle, all over the show, become comes in absolutely clutch when misalignments happen, and you need to call on someone at short notice, and you need them to believe you when you say, "I will do better next time," "I'll get ahead of this next time," "We can do better than this," I promise you, and I want to spearhead making it happen. Marish, have you uh, got any thoughts?
4: Uh, actually, I wanted to check on something. So uh, the Friday outings that you guys had, were they during the working hours or after hours?
1: Uh, it was, it was uh, you know, there might have been a, a cheeky half an hour early because it's a Friday, but al- always Fridays and, uh, yeah, usually straight after work, even if it's just for an hour. Type
4: thing. Yeah, so uh, just to be clear, I get your point, so I'm going to uh I'll be a little bit of a devil's advocate, but let's say you are a young per- young dad or young mom with two kids at home Friday afternoon and you really want to be with your family. What then? What your manager is going to say about uh, about this? Or let's say that your manager will be sympathetic and say, oh, fine. Will it not exclude you from what you just described?
1: T- totally. I, I completely take your point. I was I was young, single, you know, new to the industry. I wanted to make friends. I knew what my one core skill was which was making people like me. So I completely get that. But I hope there's usually enough studio culture. There's still lunchtime clubs. There's still early morning things before work starts. I think there's things where I, you know, you can try and include as many people as possible, but you you make a really strong point, of course.
0: Yeah. I had one thought there, because we have a buddy system at evolution which works to an extent. You basically hey, you're having lunch with this person, deal with it. And it tends to be quite nice because these are usually people very outside. Um, and I, one of our clients has a very nice thing where there's a week called Passion Week where everyone has breakfast together when they do have the office. And like most people come in, it's an optional thing, but that apparently does amazing stuff. And I think what Marish was said, like we usually finish that half day on Friday and then the second half is more retrospectives. And if we're in, we might go out somewhere. So I think, yeah, there's a way which will cost company time, but from the sound of it, it would be worth it. Um, yeah, uh, Joanna, before we move on to the next question, what do you have to say?
2: Uh, yeah, I wanted to just build up on that because like both Jordan's and Mariusz's point were really, really good. I, I fully appreciate the benefit of going to the pub on, on Friday. The problem with that is that a lot of people are now working hybrid or they're working remotely. So one thing that can exclude you, you being just a really busy person, having kids, having to be back home. But the other thing is like people are often not even just in the same country. Um, so I think it's very important that the things like Harry, you mentioned, like having that lunch and you can or breakfast, you can, you can do that remotely. You can have a chat remotely. Uh, one of the things we were doing my previous company was um, Friday lunch social. So it it was within your an hour of your unpaid time, <laughs> but so it was absolutely uh you could you could volunteer to come you didn't have to, but it was a nice thing. To, no work topics were allowed, and we would we would meet and we would chat about our weekend plans, and we would just get this little window into the other people on your team lives, just to get to know them a little bit more. Because I do think if you know someone and and as a person not just as a work colleague you will have more patience you will be able to communicate a little bit better you will be much more uh, likely to think the best of the, that person and 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 much less likely to take their words the wrong way around so i, I think there's a huge uh, value in making sure that you you invest in your company culture and you have Game jams together, or you can have those um, lunch socials, or you 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 sometimes maybe do I don't know a pizza Thursday evening, or you you invest the time and the resource into into people and people building relationship with each other.
0: Hundred percent, and I just thought of something fun. Like I had an experience where a contractor started, and there was a bit of friction because the communication was mostly done over text, and just reflecting back. It probably could have done with a bit of a relaxing kind of let's just chat for half an hour to an hour. And then, of course, most communication will likely be by text, but at least getting out of the way. Because then what you said, like people won't misconstrue things. And it'll be a bit more empathetic. Right. Um, awesome. Let's move on to the next question, which
4: is from Maros. Maros, what is your question and the context behind it? So the question is, how do we communicate critical issues to the team in advance? What is the long-term plan for this type of communication? I'm thinking here about something that affects studio on a whole. Let's say that um, there's financial trouble, or there is a buyout, or uh, the layoffs coming, or something else that is really important for everyone. And the context for it is that um, our industry is all a bit schizophrenic, running, I would say. we work in entertainment, and it's art. Art is, art is difficult to define. Everyone wants to be creative, and there is that kind of uh, um, of something that cannot be really... How to really describe it? You cannot process manage it fully, right? On the other hand, we are business. Business must be very closely managed. We all have our oracles, abditas, whatever it's called we need to deliver. And that also goes back to the previous question of Jordan about the tension between project management and uh, team and uh, studio management. Uh, and people who are in an in industry are often very passionate. We're going to games. Uh, we actually have Arthur from uh, from Larian Baldur's Gate this is a great example of an art style game, right? That is driven by very strong music, very strong graphical style, but ad and a lot of th- things that we Usually associated with art, and people who are on that kind of a project usually are quite passionate. And then you have that hard called reality, <laughs> and how to marry this in that in that communication, how to communicate difficult things.
3: Um, yeah, I'll be the first to answer if you not uh, if you don't mind. So I would say I was fortunate enough to not have to follow up on like any warnings I had to do in the past. But at the same time, I believe as a manager, if you want to get your team's respect and love, it's important to be as upfront and honest as you can, but also on a rational level. If you think that um, a certain risk, certain fear is now tangible enough and not a phantom menace that might affect their lives or their careers in given X months, I think it's important to bring it up to say, like, "Hey, this may or may not happen, depending on how well we do." And if it doesn't happen, great, everyone's happy; it doesn't, it didn't transpire, yeah. And you just keep doing what you're doing. If it happens, you were, you know, the good guy who let them know much as an as in advance as it was um, possible, uh, so they will be thankful for that. I think a lot of people are trying to be overprotective and not uh, let their team know of any. Kind of potential bad events, um, in an attempt to rightly so, you know, shielding them, uh, from, from this fear. But this, in my experience, experience, ultimately may end up worse than one would imagine. Uh, Jordan, what do you think?
1: Can I pick up on two points? that was great. I think, do you can I ask how, as the head of studio in the room, would you how does Larian address it? Is it you send out is you it, it a Slack message?
3: How, how, I, how I, yeah, message. yeah, I was gonna yeah,
1: say because yeah. <laughs> we, you know, I've, I've had uh live streams, I've had curated videos where we've scripted up a you know specific message and, and put it out to a studio with that just written message. I think the entire gaming community has now got uh, there's even a Twitter account dedicated to it. I forget the name of that, that kind of when that very serious SLT message goes out about a delay or. Something big happening, like people pick up on that quite you know, a formal messaging line. But I think maybe what, what you nailed it with is just treat people like adults. There's going to be an element of protecting someone, sure. But at what point do they say that was actually more damaging to me to not hear it than to now hear it very last minute or, or something, you know?
3: Um, yeah, I would just quickly add that even worse, uh, your team may learn something from that public message instead of from you which is probably the thing that should not should not happen should not transpire um, joanna you wanted to add something
2: sure yeah um i think that's super important that you give people heads up there's nothing worse than think you're secure and then suddenly all of, like i don't know after thursday lunch you get told oh actually you don't work here anymore here is here's the door it, People need to be able to prepare for things like that. If something is coming, as you said, Arthur, like if it's too early, no point of of scaring them. But once it becomes tangible risk, then I do really think it it should be not only communicated, but also people need reassurance that the studio is putting medication in, in place to... Avoid that risk so it doesn't happen, or a plan. What what do we do if it does happen? Like, what's going to be our strategy? Um, and I also think it's really important to allow Q and A um, and answer those questions. But I do think a, a, a prep, like a level of prep before that, is very important. So you perhaps put a survey up and you gather the question and then within the senior leadership team you have a discussion, okay, how do we answer this question and how do we deliver this answer in the least painful way? Because I've seen companies doing that but then they have perhaps not thought through how they should answer it and then the delivery is so painful that the the, un- the fact they are answering the question is actually making things worse. So I think there's, there should be very careful planning and preparation before you communicate that information to, to your team, to your studio.
1: Can I, uh, can I curve ball you there a bit, Joanna? Absolutely. That prep takes a lot of time. Senior leadership is usually the most time poor, getting them to sit down and align like that properly is, is maybe going to be difficult to, to make work to prepare for thoroughly do you then run the risk of over-preparing, over-thinking it, saying something that maybe damages you in the long run?
2: It's a really good point. Do you you delegate it
1: to PR, even, to comms? Do you have an internal comms function, perhaps? Do you Mm. have enough trust in them to handle the messaging? But then you've got to be the person that delivers it and owns it. So you're going to feel slightly aggrieved if it doesn't go down well. And you're like, oh so-and-so just set this up for me and I've just eaten a eaten a sword. This is awful. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm really glad you actually pointed <laughs> out because I also know why you're delivering that message to your people, you're probably also really hard working at things not happening to your studio and you're between a rock and a hard place. And I, I fully appreciate how difficult position that is. And also how... For people who are in that position, it must be extremely difficult to be thinking, hey, I might lose those people, I might lose my studio, that must be awful. And, and i fortunately never been in that situation and I really don't envy anyone who has. Um. And I, I appreciate it's hard to prioritize where you're there. So maybe perhaps don't spend too much time, but just not make it an afterthought. Don't, don't just... Read the question during the meeting with your staff. Give it just a little bit of a thought previously, so you don't you don't just wing it on the spot. Um yeah. Um Harry, do you do you have any thoughts about this?
0: I do, but it's more it's more questions really. So I'll go straight to Arthur and then Mary first.
3: Um yeah, I think Joanna brought a brilliant point about reassurance. And this is something I left out of my initial reply because I would absolutely agree that reassurance is as important as communicating. It's not just enough to say like, Hey, we have a problem. Yeah. Just so you know, in four months it might transpire or not. Um, it's equally as important to say, like, we have a problem and I'm going to do this and this and this about it in an effort to try and, you know, for it not to happen, do you think this is enough, or do you have any other ideas what we can do as a group, as a company, um, to reduce the risks of that? Of that, and um, by saying that, you are involving your team in an effort to counter a potential risk, and then they would also, you know, feel very grateful for having a, playing a part in it, and they might may come up with some good ideas as well, and then you kind of share that burden of a potential risk together, and. Yeah, share the success if, if it happens to be one as well.
0: Marius,
4: uh, I wanted to go back to something that Jordan said about uh, leadership team my not having enough time. Uh, I don't like it as an excuse. Is the job? This is how I see it as a critical responsibility of the teams leader and the team leadership. Uh, is the job to do it? We all come and we are under contract. We do what we are contracted to do and it's for them. So uh, if team leadership communicates it poorly and there is a problem after that, they failed.
0: Simple as. I have a thought here. So I'm looking at this as a recruiter now. So I... I've been through one or two cycles and I actually see on recruiter like a wave of people from a client or company rather. So where they just go open to work and I'm like, okay, something's happening. And when I actually find out it's, some of it is actually presumptive because things are happening internally. So the risk hasn't happened yet. So I'm just being devil's advocate here. If I'm a company and I say, Hey guys, some of you not, might not be here because of XYZ. If you deliver it like that, that might literally, company-wide, make you less money, I guess, if that makes sense, because people might leave and then exacerbate the problem and actually make it a problem. However, I think with what we mentioned today, with combining that, hey, here's what's happening honest, but uh, here's what we're going to do about it, here's what we should do about it together, I want your input, then obviously that would mitigate that. But I still think there's going to be an element of that and yeah I, i'm just wondering if that's like something we should just accept that it's going to happen or is that maybe not a thing uh i'm just musing here um marius do you still have your give you joanna um
2: yeah i mean that's that's the thing that's the risk of you also not communicating if you don't if you don't say anything and people see what's happening in the industry, because I I think it's very difficult to be in the industry and just see the layoffs happening sometimes multiple places a day and you you're in the industry and you see all this happening. And then if your senior leadership team is absolutely silent about it, then you're going to be thinking, well, they are, they are not talking about it because something that's happening, right? Otherwise, they would they would say something. Um, And that's why I think it's super important that you are transparent, and you communicate right. Uh, And sure, you can, if you don't communicate, right, as Roger said that you fail at your job, and you will scare people away and people will be like, Oh, well, I better look for places elsewhere. Um, So I think it's super important that you do say something and that you say it right. And you reassure your people and you, you will let them know that, hey, we are okay, or those are the things we are putting in place in order to to be safe.
0: No, well, very good point, point. and this is actually a very nice segue to Arthur's question, which is about what happens after. So, Arthur, what is your question and the context behind it?
3: Yeah, mine is pretty much a continuation of uh, Marius's one. So, we all know it's it's not been the easiest or the brightest year for the industry. Yeah, multiple projects being delayed. Um, teams downsizing so my question is how do you communicate to your team to your studio when people just are anxious about the state of things in the industry not necessarily in your very company because not everybody might have gone through downsizing this year and then what's your personal take on how the industry will recover and possibly when this is more like yeah more like a prediction thing but uh, yeah what do you think? My personal take on it, I'm generally very optimistic about the industry. I think we all here love it. That's why we're here. So I would say it always has to get a little dark before you see some light. So I think maybe start of next year, we'll travel in the dark for a little bit. But then towards the end of the year, we'll see some light. Um, Marius, do you want to go first?
4: uh should, starting from your latter question about the predictions because we all love predictions uh it's great opportunity to be completely mistaken uh, <laughs> and verify this in a few months time so my take on this is that uh we see a combination of few factors uh for the last few years everyone in gaming industry was hiring and literally no one was firing uh, because of covid because of the booming gaming caused by COVID. Uh, there was a great search of the people. There was not enough skilled people around. Everyone was fighting. It was great markets to get pay rise, to get a better position, just to move around. Uh, but these uh, fat years ended. So there is there is correction. So that correction was not happening naturally for the few years. Now it's happening in a bulk. And the second thing on top of that is the recession. recession. We are in the recession uh, caused by wars, caused by general uh, Weak economic outlook of the world. Let's let's put it in that general terms, and um, and it also adds up to all of this. So studios, well, not just the studio. Everyone in a, maybe not just in a gaming, but in many other industries, use is using the opportunity to do that correction long overdue, in my opinion. Uh, when it ends, hopefully in uh, spring next year. When what usually happens, there is an old uh, saying that look where they are firing because they will be hiring there next. (laughs) Um, hopefully in the spring, we'll see some rebounding and we'll see because companies will align, businesses will align. They will start, there will be new plans, new future, new projects to develop, and it will move into, into the, into the growth next. Um, and I think that's all on my end
1: uh I reckon there's I think you're absolutely you're bang right after I think there's although it's a period of darkness, there's so much to be optimistic about and so much to be excited about, and we wouldn't be here, and I wouldn't be loving my job every day if i didn't if I didn't want to be in it if I, you know if the turmoil was too much, then sure you know that's that's fine I'm sure. I, but um, in terms of what will happen in the future or going into next year, um, how do things pan out? I think there's maybe three very interesting points that you could look at uh, there, or, or to point people at. Maybe let's start start with one relevant relevant to Larian. Hard year, absolutely no shortage of phenomenal titles dropping and i do mean phenomenal titles i've never seen a game of the year that i think is more contested borders Gate 3 does have my vote by the way arthur but but you know it so so many titles that are really nailing it home so it's not that the projects aren't there i think maybe this the underlying uh reason for for, for businesses for studios as an industry is they do take a lot longer to make than they used to and they take a lot more money to make than they used to and maybe Borders Gate is an excellent example of a title that I think has used early access really, really effectively to manage that prolonged production cycle. And you look at a time now where there's press around other games where they've been crunched to try and get uh, another, another installment in a franchise out in under two years, in barely a year and a half. We're cutting this, that, and the others to try and make it work. On the other end of the scale, you've got games very happy to be in early access for as long as they need to be to get it bang right so when they do release... When they do go to market, it's a phenomenal reception. And people are lauding, oh, it's almost a different game to the one I started playing a couple of years ago. Wow, just improvement on improvement on improvement. Look at, look at, look at, look at this weaponized development cycle that's now been communicated well, harnessed. I fostered my early adopters so strongly that I think there's no shortage of great titles around the corner for this industry, despite how how difficult things are currently. I think Mariush is, is bang right for my second point on economy so many factors right now that we have absolutely no control of, like none none this most of these most of these uh the redundancies things going on a lot of them are nothing to do with the people involved or that they're actually getting affected some are some will be a mismanagement of a project maybe or you know funding of the publisher not quite being where you know they thought it was going to be when they started the project three years beforehand now they're at year four and it's like oh god factors that are outside of your control you know we can only hope for the world to be in a better place this time next year it's all up on that and um, although I know it might have come up a lot for um, people, it might be, might not have, I don't know. You, you guys tell me, hybrid versus in-office? I think most of us around this table remember COVID or pre-COVID. I was in the studio every day, I was at my desk every day, I was talking to people every day, I was seeing my project leads and my studio leads every day. We then had a long, long period where that just wasn't the case. Since then, the industry now settles into a period of you know remote, hybrid, or in office or anywhere in between. Some offices have called people back three days. Others have really embraced fully remote or hybrid, as, as Joanna was saying earlier before the call. And some studios are spread all over the world. so There's no there's no way it can't be remote and across multiple time zones. But I think there's definitely a question of efficiency in most studios where they're starting to wonder where certain projects are being hit by time or, or you know, their production isn't moving forward in the same way it was before COVID that maybe poses an interesting question as to, well, this was taken on, but then took a huge hit for something we didn't expect. And now it's not where we forecast it to be. And it's not going to hit the release window that we thought it was going to. And the release window is going to hit, has massive hitters in it, like Zelda or Starfield or whatever. No, I don't want to go up against them. God, terrible idea. We move. Owners don't like that. Everything gets conflated, gets difficult, you know. I, I think I'd probably put it on those three elements that I'd that I'd say going into next year is incredibly bright. But I would, all three of them are, are massive factors. Joanna, you got any thoughts?
2: Um, I, I think all your points were really good, and and they are touching on like things that are extremely controversial, like what is the right like so many studios are now advocating okay no remote is great no you have to be in the office and it's it people have so much to say and i think either any of those options comes with with positives and and trade-offs so it whatever you do i think you have to set up your studio in order to be able to do that right um and efficient because it is true we are let's say relatively young industry and there's a lot of inefficiencies because this is a creative process and we are also very user centric so it's very normal for a game to go and do a user test and realize oh okay we're actually not making the game or the game is not the, that we wanted to make or like the games not successful in what we are trying to achieve and then they have to pivot and that could add to the development time. And there's the other question of, and, and that is definitely very controversial, especially with, with the news of the GT, um, A6, that, um, what, what should be the price for, for the games we are making because You go to the cinema and and you pay for a movie and you let's say be you're in the cinema for two or three hours and pay 15 quid um you buy a game that right now we, we all the games are so huge they are so huge They're open world games that you then play for you know dozens of hours and then you're you know you have a team that worked on that game for five plus years and the expectation is, oh, that's going to be fifty quid max. Fifty quid is already expensive, but then, you know, the budget might be two hundred fifty million in order to be able to deliver that game. So, what is the fra- fair price? Are we, are we really being like? And I know I'm coming from, you know, inside of the industry, so I, I understand the amount of work that goes into making a game. But I, I would question whether our pricing of the games are quite right because I don't feel they moved that much since, you know, when I was a kid, I remember games were incredibly expensive and you would buy a game and you would really play it. Non stop. When right now you can you can just pick up a game on Steam for fifteen quid and you can play for it for one evening and just bin it because it's so little money. So you feel comfortable doing it, and maybe perhaps you wouldn't have done it if you if you really had to do your research and buy precisely the game you want, and then you know invest in the right game rather than buy ten, um, because buying a game and then not playing it is also dangerous to that game if there's a game that has a server that needs players in order to to you know pay for the server then that's a huge issue as well for for any game that you know how many great titles had to retire their servers because they are not hitting the player numbers um so yeah i would just pass this to varnish varnish what do you think
4: I actually wanted to follow up on the first part of the of question of Arthur because I responded to the second. <laughs> uh, so sorry, uh, a little bit of a change of a topic. So um, it was about the communication within the studio, um, about h- events that are happening outside of, for example, something in the world or something in the in the industry, like wave of layoffs. Layoffs. What are studios gonna say about this? Uh, So my opinion is if studio management is not going to say anything about this, then people will start creating stories. No one's stupid. Everyone is interested in his own uh, well-being. And if there is no communication, people will start figuring out why there is no communication. Does it mean we are all good? Or is there a problem somewhere? And that comes back to the what was already mentioned already. Sorry, um, I just said already three times. (laughs) Uh, it's about uh, studio leadership knowing when to say what. Timing is very critical. It cannot be said too early. It cannot be said too late. But for example, uh, when I am uh, on a big call, let's say that there is a quarterly review call, a revenue call of, of a company, then I do expect the boss of the whole com- com- company to address an issue like, let's say, uh, war to just say something about it. What's the company stance about it? Especially that in a, in our case, we have a studio in, in one, of the, one of these countries. So I do expect team leadership to say something about that kind of issue. If they don't, I will start creating stories. So that's my answer. Lack of communication is also a, a communication, but probably not the best in that case. <laughs> 100 percent, and
0: i love the idea of just using the monthly or quarterly reviews you have because then you can just kind of you can assume what the people are really thinking and just kind of set the conversation rather than let people set a conversation that is going to be worse right um i wanted to give my uh, take on the the second part of the question with regards to just what's happening next year so um i've Basically, I, I speak to people and they tell me when they're planning to hire. And what I'm trying to understand now is the, there's different types of companies. And I think with interest rates being so low the last couple of years, you've had some crazy hiring decisions, which made sense if the trajectory was going forever like that. And then we've had that correction almost already. I think it's still happening, but I think that correction's basically happened. And then depending on your type of studio, if you're owned by a larger company, then they are still hiring. Like I've seen a lot of like, okay, here's our two-year plan. We need all this extra stuff. Plenty of those happening. And then I think we've had a lot of studios close down. And then those people already are starting up new things and that's going to start a new wave as well. And then you have the third, which I think, just cash flow positive, smart. And I think those are just kind of sticking to the efficiency side of things. And then when you add the remote aspect to it, there's a lot of movement happening just based on pleasure, not based on like money, if that makes sense. And then all this movement, I think, still makes a kind of active hiring. It will just be less busy. Like uh, evolution, like I've got a trailer board here. We have 22 active jobs, which on the 16th of November isn't that common because. Like these people need to start now. So that's like there's a lot of hiring happening kind of last minute. So there's a few cycles for recruitment point of view, just from my perspective. And it's like spring and kind of autumn. And we're having a late autumn, which in my idea means like there's a lot of people who need, at least on the contractor side, which I think still affects um, headcount in general. But yeah, I think we'll have a busy start to the next year, at least for a certain few studios anyway. So that's a bit bit of optimism there. Nice. Um, alrighty, let's move on to the final question, which is from Joanna.
2: Sure thing. Um, so my question is about the differences between the generations. Um, and cause usually, and I'm, I'm really glad we have a, a widespread of experience within this team even, um, because you will have people who've been in the industry for, let's say, 20 years or been there from the very beginning and you have a lot of people who are just starting and those are completely different generations that that have different priorities they think in a different ways they approach life differently Um, and I'm interested in what is your experience in managing that when your team is one generation and your leadership team is completely different generation because communication is already so so difficult and when you have that extra spin of people who are trying really hard to communicate and they are doing their best but they are still not getting there and that could potentially be because they've just been born you know long time apart um archer i'll pass this over to you
3: um I was wondering about your question, whether it's just about um, the experience in the industry or actual age of a person as well. But then I realized that my answer would probably cover both, and I think it's as old as democracy, uh, surprisingly. The the answer is representation. I think when you have different kind of people, like diverse people, um, both senior and less so, um, both in management and on the project team, then you have different voices uh, that include all of the groups and that make it easier to connect with each other from like both sides. Um, I, I think this has worked well in all the teams, all the companies I worked in. So this would be my answer to your question. Uh, Mario.
4: Yes, I am of opinion that attitude has no age. And that differences between generations are overrated. Yes, every generation will have a specific, uh, myth. Let's say that generation of my grandfather, the myth was the world war. So they were, they were very occupied on this and that was dominated their life. But, uh, if you think about it, if you speak to someone, um, uh, you will find a connection to that person. Both of you, for example, may think similarly on in the, in terms of project management. There is a common sense, there is language, so yes. So in my opinion, yes, there is something to it, but I wouldn't overstate it, it's about who these people are. That kind of leadership, let's say that there is a leadership X, right? If they behave in a specific way, they will try to select people uh, who will match their way of doing things. Irrelevant of generation. They will just follow up on that.
0: What about preferred communication styles? Because I feel like there is a significant difference between a 21-year-old and a 42-year-old in terms of their default communication style. Like if you were onboarding um, either type of person there into a studio, I feel like there might be an, a little bit of education maybe of like, hey, here's how we communicate. How do you prefer to communicate? And then maybe in on that because I think um, the default sometimes is maybe too little calls, or maybe too much calls, not enough asynchronous communication. Um, Any thoughts on that?
4: So if I can, yeah, I can follow up on that uh, as well. So we all were young at some point. We went to a company and there was that difference that you just described. Mm -hmm. And the question is, is it a generational difference or experience difference, or difference of doing things in a specific way? Because communication is is often a quiet trait. We do not communicate. I, I certainly do not communicate now as I communicated 20 years ago. So it's about, uh, again, for me, it's about attitude. Someone comes to their work and that that person is either narcissistic or great, uh, wants to do things or doesn't want to do, maybe entitled, maybe really good team worker. You pick and choose and communication and also the skill is something that you can learn. Yeah. And we are all people. The people who are 20s are not really a different species.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Even though some people think so. Uh, Jordan. Yeah, um,
1: I think what Mash is saying is, is, yeah, it kind of holds true, really, right? It's, it's, we're a young industry. That's maybe worth underlining, right? When the game is actually a kickoff, truly. What, arcade cabinets in the late 70s? Early 70s, maybe? So that puts us at, what, 53 years old? Incredibly young versus most other established industries think automotive or wider tech or anything else like that. Right. So I think Joanna has a really strong point that there are people, veterans now of the, of the industry that came up doing things a different way, maybe came up in a studio when they saw it in its golden period, where maybe things were a little smaller and a little more agile, a little quicker just to punch through, get things done. Maybe it was more of its time. I think there's definitely uh, a, ge- a case for a generational difference to be there because, in the same way that my dad's school experience was not the same as my school experience, because his teacher hit him with a slipper and he thought that was fine. You know, <laughs> what? The countryside in England in the seventies, mad. But yeah, what 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 what's what's happening in the studio now? I think there is definitely as as to your point, Marish, that the communication style is what's different, not the generations. Generations are always going to be different. There's always going to be frictions like that, no matter what. I think only the other day, um, one one of our leaders was saying to me how I was making a point about breathing. He said, "Well, the, the older staff in the in the studio really just want to know." exactly how to do something right with absolutely no room for failure i was like okay right He's like, on the other hand younger people in the studio like to be able to express their opinion or put forward their plan or pitch something that they think could work and even if it fails they just want to see it fail quickly and move forward again and and go again we we go again on that type of thing and he's like that is too distinctly opposite styles of working where one person needs to be plated an exact recipe for success and the other person just needs a clear enough communication at the very beginning as to what is expected that they'll try and hit it and even if it doesn't hit they feel more appreciated and more involved in the cycle by even falling short and going again i know there's a risk there you go around in circles but i feel that's more to Marish's point that the communication style up front is is the acquired trait that helps alleviate all of this Whether you came up in Bethesda in its founding years or, you know, you was part of a bullfrog when it was making Theme Hospital and bangers like that, whatever age you entered this industry, it has grown monumentally in the last... 20 years, let's say, 23 years, probably since 2000, a lot has changed. A lot has changed about publishing. I mean, even the the emergence of Steam as a digital storefront, that was a huge, huge wave for the entire industry to all of a sudden not have to deal with physical SKUs and for small developers to be able to just push a game live to a community and not rely on one of six or seven publishers that owned everything. And if they said no, you just didn't get in. So th- this... I think we have had to have grown with the generations, and, and, and our communication needs to adapt with that, and all of it kind of interconnects together in a sense.
2: Thanks so much, Jordan. It's uh, you've put it really, really well, and uh, and I absolutely agree with everything that's been said. That I think, they, I think emotional intelligence is extremely important. Being able to recognize where we are different people, and I think open mind from everyone involved in that communication is also super important in order to be able, okay, this person is different. They have the different things drive them. They are, they're motivated by different things or they, their needs are different, but I am able to cons- take that into consideration and communicate appropriately. Um, yeah.
0: No, and I percent second that. I think if you want to prevent people from leaving your studio, just speak to them more about what's their motivations because I think a lot of people would just assume and it could be different for people who see right next to each other and, and it's not usually money. That's not necessarily the biggest thing. It's loads of different moving parts and I think that's another thing where you might have different motivations based on generations despite similar skills. So I think, yeah, that's just one using like one-to-ones and stuff. Um, I have one follow-up question before we go. So the, I guess, use of one-to-ones and i'm thinking because i've heard like in larger studios it's potentially to me a bit too sporadic like from let's say the exact producer having a one-to-one with a developer or an artist and potentially it's happening on a smaller scale with the person before but i'm just curious thoughts on one-to-ones useful how often and my follow-up question is difference between speaking with like embedded freelancers and employees Because I have some students that treat them pretty much exactly the same. Some basically don't have the one-to-ones and it's a bit different communication style. So just on that topic of like making sure the communication is efficient. Any thoughts on that, Joanna?
2: Um, So I think we should start this discussion from defining what is one-to-one. Because across the years, I have seen a completely different different styles of what one-to-one is. And I've seen them being very process driven and very formal um, that don't give you much safe space. Um, I've seen one-to-one being just a discussion, an update between a line manager and a person of how's their work going. And it has actually nothing to do with personal development. And there's the last one that I believe myself to be the right thing, which is, one-to-one that's focused on the person's skills and personal development and how they going to progress in their career. So it shouldn't, in my opinion, be about the work that's being done because that should be a different meeting. The one-to-one, in my opinion, should be about focusing on that person. So me as a line manager, I would be focusing on my baby producer and I'll be like, okay, what do you want to do? Where' where are your interests? Where do you want to where do you want to go next in your career? And I really want to focus on that person's skills and developing those skills and tailoring what I'm gonna talk to them about to what they want to talk about and what are their needs and where are their weaknesses and, and their strengths and And that's proper one-to-one, in my opinion. And when we define it like that, then we can talk about, okay, how frequent does that need to be? Like That, of course, depends then on what our project timeline is, because if there's a really aggressive timeline, then it's very harsh to expect from someone, okay, we're going to hit an hour every single week because that's frequent and that takes away from that very precious time for the project. But also we cannot just... Totally push it to the sides and not care about that person because it's a critical part of the studio culture to to deliver those one to ones. Um, I don't know, uh, Jordan, uh, you raised your hand, so
1: I uh, I really agree, Joanna. I think that well, I think there's an element of both sides have got to want it, right? Like, if I'm not interested in engaging or anyone to talk very bluntly about uh things i'm dealing with very specific to my project my discipline it's one way of going about it but i'd agree with you that's a separate conversation i think equally e- equally the manager needs to be invested in doing the one-to-one i think that's it's a two-way street right it's not just on what they can offer you right if they're not engaged or if they you know a lot of managers in the games industry don't necessarily have formal management training even they're usually someone that has got to a very high point in their career maybe principal artist let's say right excellent drawer phenomenal at churning stuff out all of a sudden there's nowhere less for them to go they're offered head of art brilliant huge celebration new new title you know bigger wage brilliant what they're not trained for in that situation is you know uh then handling the the whims and needs of four to six mid to senior artists or whatever below them plus the new uh, expectation of being on from slt for whatever else is there right they go from feeling really, really good about themselves and very much only knowing success to all of a sudden facing tons of challenges that they're just so not aware of. So that there's an element of preparing both sides to be good at this, a, a training across the board that helps. And then I think back to Joanna's point that, yeah, the, the one-on-one really should be career progress, personal progress, challenges faced personally. That's it. Project comes second if i'm not knowing how to progress if i'm not seeing constant steps towards that if i'm not finding a way to pay my rent more easily or save for a house as impossible it may, as it may feel in the uk or or any other element then why am i here it's for the love of it but like you know it's something we say in every interview like i know you're here to pay your bills but like why else are you here right and i think that that's quite important and that does border into personal progress you know i uh as an example i I'm a dyslexic, so I really struggle with being succinct. And the more I've gone up that ladder, the more I found that my communications, especially of SLT, need to be as concise and as unbelievably direct as possible. There is no room for misunderstanding, zero. And if anything gets lost in the reads or they only half read a message, then I've already failed. And we're, we're off track type thing. So, you know, even a personal thing, like you need to speak, less, Jordan, or you'll need to communicate or use an AI to help aid your one pager into four lines or four bullets or whatever you know that's as a detail orientated person production versus the person i need to speak to has a hundred messages waiting for them i'm only one 100 for their concern aren't i so i feel that you know there's an example of personal versus career progress right and then the only thing i want to say to outside of that is challenges is there anyone i'm dealing with that i could be better with is there anything i'm doing i want to look at myself there and have an honest and candid reflection from my line manager as to what could you could be doing better, where you're thriving, where you're not, how can we improve that? All of it should be positive, constructive feedback that moves you forward. And I think that makes one-on-ones really important, whether that's monthly, whether that's weekly. Weekly might be a bit much, to be honest. Depends, you know, It depends how time-rich you are and how effective you make discussion. I personally find that you know, a good two-hour, let's go at it, at the end of the month is a lot better than you know, six individual 15-minute check-ins where I can't even really get into the meat of what I'm
3: facing, right? Arthur, have you got any uh got any thoughts on this? Um yeah, so as as to the question itself, I would say that um we do what we call a performance and development one-on-ones, at least at mm-hmm. least annually. And that involves providing feedback, providing direction on how to improve, you know, what to focus on and what has been really good. And as to Harry's second question on embedded freelancers, I would say if they are like long-term with us, so meaning more than a year normally, then we treat them in a similar way. So we also have one-on-ones with them where where we give them feedback and direction for for improvement.
0: Lovely. And I love the distinction of the one-to-ones with the personal side because I feel like that means you finish every one-to-one with basically action points for both usually because then the person was like, all right, we can improve this and this and you're not getting an improvement on your skills because of something we're not doing. We can actually do that, which is great. And yeah, that's a very good point with the the contractors as well. Like after a while, you kind of need to treat them as embedded because then you just get the full experience. And one point I'd make, because we do a weekly um, check-in for contractors in their first month, and it's unbelievable how much we catch. And that's just me speaking to them as a recruiter. I wasn't even working there. So I have a weekly catch up with the hiring manager and the contractor. And yeah, I think the first month, kind of typical, you usually have a touch point with HR, for example. But yeah, I think every week just saying, hey, what's happened? What could be better? And then after that, monthly, bi-monthly, sounds like a good time. Jordan.
1: Yeah, I think sorry, getting that you pointed that out on contractors as well. I think for a lot of people in the industry, depending on the studio you work for, co-development can be their experience of of that, uh, or maybe they have, yeah they graduated outside of it and now they're freelancing back in type thing. I think there's a question there of studio process, and I, I can agree with Arthur more in the sense of you must you must if not initially, you must eventually grow to embed them and treat them as the one and the same team, right? If they they're not going to be invested in the success of your project or they're going to be very systematic about their completion of just x 10 boxes that need to be ticked based on their statement of work and nothing else and thus never be part of that team or be celebrated at the end with that team if that's how you're going to set the relationship up to begin with so if they're a disposable work source that you don't want to involve in your culture and that team's excitement to show them the given, give them part of the show and tell, make sure you're seeing and crediting them as much and as vocally as you would any other part of the team. think very easily they, they end up falling off or, or, or feeling like they're out of the loop. And especially for any teams where they're on site a lot. So things are moving, you know, 50 miles an hour and we're not setting up 10 extra teams team meetings a week to keep them involved, to keep them up to date, to keep them on board, to constantly back and forth on questions all the more so, the need for you know a touch point. Dare I say, a DevComs manager or someone to keep owning and making sure there is a relevancy there that keeps that team invested in the success of the game they're on, even if that contract is you know six months, or even if that one person is only in for three concept arts or whatever. Like, yeah, super, super important, I think. Joanna,
2: I just want to add to to what you've been talking about. I think it's super important that we. And really what Arthur said, I think it's super important that we treat contractors just the same as anyone else in the studio. As soon as, of course, we don't do it straight away, but there's a process to it. But I think the goal should be that we treat them the same because those people will embed into your team. They will make friends. If you treat a bunch of people as, you know, the more important ones and the, the second much as well, they are not as important, we don't care about them as much. And then you disrespect them, and the people who they made friends with, the team, they are going to witness that, and that's going to affect them. So it, there, there's this negative impact of mistreating your contractors because your team then will be like, oh, well, if we can do that to them, who else can we do that to? So it's super important that we respect all the people within the team. They are all contributing to our game, and they're all people. And we should treat them the same. And, and you know, of course, if, you know, we are getting contracted just for like, I don't know, really quick jobby for like one month, then you're not going to invest all your resources in having frequent one-to-one with them. So there's, the, the, we have to be reasonable with our approach, but also we have to come from the place of assuming we are going to treat them right and with the res- with respect they deserve. I
0: mean... You just get more out of them, which is kind of what you would want anyway. So it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's very nice what you mentioned there because then you avoid the us versus them, which I think can happen sometimes where like, ah, the contractor Slack channel, we can just treat them differently. And it's kind of lead by example, right? If you're treating them with the, you find them out for the parties, um, they just, or they're part of on site onboarding, like all this stuff works really well. Amazing. We are, we're time. This is time, guys. We'll leave it there. This has been the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank Jordan, Mariusz, Joanna, and Arthur for spending a good hour and a half now uh, providing their insights. And thank you everyone at home for listening. If you ever want to get involved in one of upcoming podcasts or just want to chat, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Harry Foku. Foku is spelled P-H-O-K-O.